Christina and I, we have a friend who was born in the UK, um, but lived in America for most of his life, uh, for like 20, maybe even 30 plus years. And uh, last time we were kind of in America for a, for a long time, for like a, about a year, a year stint, he was getting his American citizenship. So he's changing his allegiance from the United Kingdom to the United States of America. Um, I'm sure there's loads of jokes to be made in there, especially politically at the moment, what that means. Uh, but even though he hadn't lived in England for like 30 years or 20 years or however long it was, uh, at his citizenship thing, he had to renounce his allegiance to the queen. He had to announce his previous citizenship in order to get the new one. And he was like, it was really weird because I haven't lived here. And I don't really think about the UK that much except for business here and there. It's like, but still to say like, I no longer am allegiant to this country and now I have my allegiances with this country is a very weird thing for him. I think allegiance is a very powerful thing. It creates citizenship. It uh, means loyalty. It's kind of like a type of contract. You think, my friend thought uh, living in America long term was going to be good for him, and there were going to be better benefits for him to live there, and the USA uh, thought that he should abide by their rules. If not, you know, you go to jail and all that stuff. So um, the, the American government trusted him to uphold his end of the bargain, but not breaking laws and things like that. Well, God has always loved us, and he has never stopped loving us, He's always out for our good. And even though that's true, we doubt it and we doubt it often. When we doubt, we're wondering, is it worth it to be allegiant? Is, is, is my allegiance worth being with God? Basically, do I trust God? That's what really the question is. Do we really trust God? Is God worth our allegiance? Can we trust him? And what we see in this story, which is, it's a long story, it's a crazy story. We're gonna get to some of this stuff, probably not all the questions you might have. Um, what we see in the story is if we shift our allegiance from ourselves to God, he does not hold back. He pours himself out. He never holds himself back. We come up with all these things of he's withholding, he's not good. Um, if I, that means I have to go do these other things over here in order to get the things that I want. But that's just not how God is. God is, is never holding himself back from us. He gives himself and he pours himself out. Now this reality the fact that God never holds back, that frees us from our allegiances that are not coming through for us. So since we're beings with souls that are just too big for this world, like we're just too big to be satisfied by the things we have in this world, we will never experience fullness unless we find it in God. It just is not to be found outside of God. So if you feel like you're super busy and not fulfilled, you have to ask like, what's all this work for? Like, what am I trying to do? What am I trying to get at? I think um, one thing that's easy for us to do, and us, I'm totally included in this, is we try and inflate our job to cover all the passion that our souls are made for. And somehow that job is gonna come through and fulfill me in a way that actually can never fulfill you in the way that you really want it to, because only God can. Asking a job to care for your soul is gonna leave you burned out, it's gonna leave you bored, it's gonna leave you frustrated. We also, we try and inflate our families to cover the love that our souls long to have, but our families are just not gonna be enough. They can be great people. They can maybe sometimes be horrible people, but they're never going to be all the things that our souls really need in order to feel the love that we want. No family will give us enough of that. And asking a family to be that is actually not really fair on them because you're asking them to come through for something they cannot actually offer. And you'll be frustrated and they'll be frustrated. See, our souls require so much more. They actually, they, our souls really require nothing less than the bigness and, the, and the, the beauty and the love that God himself can give. And we can't find that anywhere else. And that's exactly kind of what we see here in the story, that God pours himself out into our lives. And that proves he's worthy of our trust. That's, he's worth us, our trust. And what we find is this, that we are fulfilled when we are filled by him. 
That's what it means to be a Christian. That's what it means to follow him. We are fulfilled. We can find our fulfillment when we're actually filled by God. And God has poured himself out on all those who trust him and asks for their allegiance. And as we live in that reality, we get to be fulfilled. And that's much better than any career, any family, any hobby, any other kind of thing that we have going on because God gives us himself. That's amazing. Like, this is real. It's kind of hard to believe. And we'll, we'll get into that. So what, what have we seen already in Acts? So we're still early in Acts. We've seen from um, two weeks ago how the Spirit empowers us, who are often powerless to do the things we want to do. Last week we saw how not only does the Spirit empower us, He guides us, helps us navigate this world of all the kind of choices we have. Today we're going to see that God Himself pours Himself out on us, and this is a turning point in the history of spirituality. This is this story is a turning point in the history of Christianity. Like the um, after this, after Acts two, things are different. Before Acts two, things are different in the way they, than they are now. And we're going to get to in on that a little bit here. And what we see is the resurrected Jesus gets to continue his mission, and his mission is bringing wholeness for those who are broken. He gets to continue his mission through his spirit, but not by himself walking on earth, through his people, which is crazy. Why would he choose to do that? I don't know, but that's what he's chosen to do. So let's get into it. Um, God pours, so we're going to look at this event first, this crazy event. We're going to look at it a little bit, and then we're going to look uh, at how Peter interprets this event. Thankfully, someone's like, what does this mean? And Peter's like, I'll tell you what it means. So we'll look at that. It's very helpful when that happens. Um, and then we'll look at like, why that matters for us and what, what are we supposed to do about it. So first, uh, this first event where God pours himself out, what in the world is happening here? These first 13 verses. This is insane. This is crazy. There is uh, and also picture this. Remember, we're in a room very, like, very much like this. First floor, about this size. Fits 120 people, so maybe a little bit larger. Probably doesn't have a bar. Um, so just think of that like being like empty area, and the kids aren't in their own area learning about Jesus yet. So there's a crazy scene here. Uh, the sound of gale force winds coming from heaven, which is weird, not coming like from the east or the west. Uh, and this, it's a sound, and it fills the whole room. And then the, a tongue of fire or the way it's described as something like a tongue of fire. So it's almost like not describable. It's something that no one, whoever, that, um, Luke who's writing this has not experienced before. He doesn't really know how to describe it. So he's like, something like a tongue of fire was on this person and it multiplied and multiplied and f- like went over everybody's head. That's weird and freaky. Sounds a little bit almost like a horror film. I don't know, it sounds scary. Um, and then uh, it says that they were filled with the Holy Spirit. And that filling with the Holy Spirit meant they spoke other languages. These other languages uh, were not coming from their own knowledge. It was coming from the Holy Spirit, just like the winds were coming from. And other people could understand those languages. Crazy. It's hard to imagine because it's so weird. It's not our experience, but there you go. God has license to do what he wants, not what makes us comfortable. Uh, and again, these, these languages um, were uh, things that people could understand, and they were describing, uh, verse 11 says, they were declaring the wonders of God in, in tongues and languages that other people could understand. So the purpose of these tongues was so that the wonders of God were, made, were um, made manifest in a way that everybody had access to, regardless of whatever kind of language they spoke to, they spoke, regardless of ethnicity or race or whatever it might be. Now, some seem to be generally interested. They're like, wow, I wonder what's going on here. Some are just kind of making fun of people, saying, oh, surely they're drunk, even though it's nine in the morning. It's kind of early to get drunk. They haven't been in Manchester, you know. So you, one time is Weatherspoon's open, 8 a.m. Sometimes, you know. Uh, but this, it's a total different, situ- different, total different culture there, right? So some use this as an opportunity to mock. Some use it as, are actually interested. And that's the same experience we have today. Some people will mock us. Some people will be interested. That's fine. That's what we should expect. Now, 
these 13 verses is such a massive event. Um, it's, it's important for us to take a moment and look at what's actually going on the way the Bible says instead of what we think it means, which is a pretty big difference. We might have heard this story before, but we're going to look at like what, what does it actually say um, versus like what do we think it says. Um, the reason why that's, this is important because there is some jacked up teaching when it comes to the spirit, when it comes to gifts. Now, I'm not going to take pot shots at any kind of tradition or any kind of background. The reason why we need to get teaching right is because jacked up teaching creates jacked up churches that creates jacked up people who hurt people. And we don't want to be that. We want to be informed by what the Bible says, what's going on. Um, and this is an area um, where there seems to be a lot, kind of a lot of questions. So let's just get into a couple of things. First, uh, there are 120 people in the very beginning. The very last verse, there's 3,000. That's bam, instant megachurch. Um, do you think people there were like, oh, I really liked it when we were small and we all knew each other. Well, sorry, like that's just different now. <laughs> and on all of these people, whether the 120 or the 3,000, all of these people receive the Holy Spirit. They all have the Holy Spirit. And Peter helpfully explains in verse 33. Um, he sa- uh, it says, exalted to the right hand of God, this is Jesus. He has received from the Father the promised Holy Spirit. So Jesus gets the Spirit from the Father. And Jesus here has poured out, on, uh, poured out what you now see in here. So this is Jesus pouring out the Holy Spirit on all the people who are here. So all received the same Spirit, but not all experienced the same phenomena. Not everybody had tongues of fire above their heads. Not everyone was speaking in languages that were not their own so that other people could understand. In fact, if you do the maths, it's only 4% of people were kind of manifesting these kind of crazy, insane gifts. That even while they're manifesting them, do not really completely understand what's going on. Um, We'll get to that in a bit. Um, So we all have, I think for us, this is what we need to learn from this. We all have the same spirit. All of us have the same spirit who follow Jesus. We all have the same spirit and we all have different gifts. And that's good because the church needs loads of different gifts. We need to have a diversity of gifts. And uh, what this does is this kind of confronts two jacked up teachings. And I'm I'm not trying to um, kind of go after anything in particular. I think we all kind of have these jacked up teachings in our backgrounds in some ways or another. Um, The first one, first jacked up teaching says that there are two baptisms of the spirit. That there's somehow one experience and then another experience. And that means there's two baptisms in the spirit, but that is just not true. It's not what we see here. Uh, it says, basically says, you make a decision to follow Jesus and you kind of get the Holy Spirit, but a little bit. And then later on in life, um, if you are very passionate or work really hard, or if you know, all of a sudden it comes out of nowhere, then you really get the Spirit. And it's only until you really get the Spirit that you really understand what God is, is about. Now that's completely wrong. I'll, I'll talk about what it means to experience the, um, uh, the power of the Spirit in a, bit, in a bit. But there is only one baptism. And when we have the Spirit, we have him. He doesn't like withhold a part of himself. We have 100%. So, but um, uh, what, what does Peter say in verses 38 and 39? Peter says, repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. That's baptism in the spirit is getting the spirit. That's what it is. That's the definition. That's literally the definition. There's no later baptism. There, there just is not. I know you guys get to have lots of questions. So I write them down. Uh, maybe if I don't get to the questions that you have, I'm very happy to answer them or we could talk over lunch downstairs um, afterwards or you can email or uh, use the, the website to get that in. But I might actually actually hit your question, so we'll see. Um, right, so that's the first one. No, there's only one baptism. The second one uh, is this, and this, is maybe, this isn't often said, but sometimes it's felt, that a mature life in Jesus means speaking in tongues or the spirit-filled life means speaking in tongues, the one-to-one correlation. 
And that's just not true. We just talked about 4% of those 3,000 people who received the Spirit spoke in tongues. It's a very small percentage, very small percentage. I don't believe tongues have ceased. Like, I don't think the Bible teaches that, the t- that tongues have ceased. Um, the use of tongues here that we're looking at is speaking in a language that everybody or that people can understand for the purpose of mission, for the purpose of declaring the wonders of God. Now, some people have this gift, not very many, and certainly not everybody, but some people do have this gift. And why am I talking about these things? Well, I think the reason why I think it's important to bring this up is because it's very common for those teachings to just kind of go on. And people are not going to say, until you've experienced, well, some people might, but it, oftentimes it's felt, until you experience this kind of radical um, thing that might be tongues or might be some other thing, then you haven't really got there yet. And it creates a second two-tier Christianity of those who are really with it and those who aren't, and that's just not what God's family is about. Now, all that said, being filled with the Spirit is a different thing than having the Spirit. We're gonna talk about that in a bit today. Um, so manifesting these gifts is very different than actually having the Spirit. One's an identity. If you have been baptized by the Spirit, you've been made new. The other one is, is activity that comes from that identity. So we'll talk about that in a bit. I just wanted to kind of confront those two, um, those two things uh, to begin with. Uh, all right, so hold on to whatever questions you might have. Or if you don't have any, that's cool. We're going ahead. Um, Here's a good question. Um, last week we talked about how, how can we understand Acts? Is it a description of what happened, like a history book, or is it a handbook for the Christian life? One is descriptive, one is prescriptive. Of course we know it's both, but where, where do those lines stop and interact? So the first question we should have is, um, how is this unlike our experience today? How is Pentecost unlike the normal Christian life? 3,000 receded immediately, 120 of those people had to wait. Remember, they've been praying for a long time, waiting for the Spirit. Why was there that difference? Why did all of a sudden the 3,000 people get the Spirit immediately, but those 120 people in the beginning, they had to wait for so long? Well, because the, there's an overlap here between the old way of doing things and the new way of doing things. The old covenant, the old promises of God, and the new covenant, the new promises of God that not only fulfill all those old promises, but give us even better ones to be able to live out. Um, this, Jeremiah 31 Uh, You may have heard these verses before. 31 through 33 says this. The days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the people of Israel and the people of Judah. It will not be like the covenant I made with their ancestors, which is the old law, the old way, the old covenant. And this is um, God's word through Jeremiah. I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. This is something in the future that God is telling Jeremiah in the Old Testament. Pentecost is this day. This is when this happens. This is the beginning of this new covenant, this new promise of God pouring himself out in a way that's different than before. And that's, that's larger, that's more inclusive. All these people in different languages are getting it. Um, Peter says people who are not only promised for you, but for your children, for those who are near, for those who are far off. We talked about Judea and Samaria, um, Jerusalem, Judea, Judea and Samaria, the ends of the earth. So it's like God's pouring himself out in a much more kind of grand way than it did before. And that means there's not going to be another Pentecost. It's unique. It happened once. It doesn't need to happen again because we are living in the realities of that Pentecost that still goes on today. This was a specific promise fulfilled at a specific time in a specific place. Pentecost is the birth of God's new family. It's the, and it doesn't need a second birth because that's like we still live in that day. We're still living spiritually the day of Pentecost. And interestingly, um, Pentecost is the Jewish celebration of Mount Sinai when Moses went up to the mountain and God gave Moses all the laws, the Ten Commandments, things like that. And when he came down, that was effectively, that was the birth of the nation of Israel. 
So God came to Moses, he poured out his laws to Moses, and then a new nation was born called Israel. But this is such a better promise because instead of pouring out laws, God's pouring out himself into our hearts and creates a new family, something even better than a nation. Does that make sense, that connection might be going on there, Pentecost and, and Sinai? It's, it's important for us because this is a, to use an overused term, and I will, it's a complete game changer. There are a few of those, probably there are a few of the, less of those than we actually use the term. Pentecost is, is a complete game changer. So, okay, that's how it's different um, from us. Something that's unique, even though we still live in that day. How, how is it prescriptive for us? Like, what does it mean for us today? And it means lots of things, but maybe just the first two things. One, the spirit works in some wild ways. Lydia, did you grow up thinking you were going to go to Papua New Guinea, like, on a medical thing at a hospital where you get, like, yeah, like, you wouldn't do that as a normal person unless the spirit's telling you to do that. You could be an abnormal person, and maybe those, you know. Um, also, uh, um, when he works, even as we're reading this, and even as Peter explains it, when he works, we don't need to always understand every nook and cranny as much as we need to just follow through in obedience. We may not understand what the calls might be in our lives completely, and that's okay, but we need to follow through in obedience. The second thing is being filled with the Spirit is different than having the Spirit, which we talked about a second ago. We're baptized by him when we first believe. That's the promise that Peter tells us. You get forgiveness, you get the spirit. We're baptized in him. We're new people. But then the Christian life is one of seeking to be filled by him. I think it's interesting that often we get this command in the New Testament to be filled by the spirit. It's a passive thing. To, you should do this thing that the spirit does to you. It's weird. Basically, it's just like dependence. It's reliance. That's being filled with the spirit. Being filled with the spirit, we see, we'll see it in Acts as we kind of um, move along means uh, being able to speak God's word boldly and not just in like a preaching session, but to people. It means uh, living a holy life. It means living humi- like in a, in a humble way. That's what being filled with the spirit is. Uh, and we can't control him. Being filled with the spirit means like we don't have any control over him. And sometimes being filled with the spirit is gonna be weird. It's gonna make us do weird things and we're not gonna be completely comfortable with it and that's all right. Um, Maybe another small example, kind of similar to Lydia, was um, when uh, Christina and I first moved here from the U.S., uh, we spent about a year, maybe a year and a half, um, learning the culture, learning um, what it means to be American living in Manchester for our family, also learning the city. We identified some gospel priority areas where we wanted to plant because we didn't know where in the, in the city we were going to plant, and I did lots of research on these areas, went to them, talked to loads of people, Gotten probably what was really awkward conversations for them, but thankfully my awkward tolerance is quite high, so I'm all right. Um, but uh, so, so Trollton was one of those three places, and I remember sitting down in a Weatherspoons pub over lunch with Mike Tyndall, the pastor of Grace Church Manchester, um, and we were talking about and praying through. We've been praying, you know, for over a year for this of where where is God moving us, and we were having a conversation. And in my head, it was like over and over and over, like a record that was skipping. Um, you remember records? Well, now they're cool now, so everyone knows. All the cool kids know what records are. Um, I just remember him saying, or I remember hearing in my head, like, it has to be Trollton. You have to go to Trollton. What are you doing? Go to Trollton. And I think Mike was saying something. I can't remember what he was saying, but I cut him off mid-sentence. I was like, Mike, like, my hands were, we have to go to Trollton. It has to be Trollton. And, like, what sense does that make, like, outside of, you know, for an American who grew up, never thought he was going to leave the country, married to somebody who thought even less she was going, you know, to move the country we were born in, 
Like, we just can't control what the Spirit is going to do, and we're not always gonna understand it. Like, I don't completely understand why God has moved us here to, like, I don't know, but like, we're just trying to follow and be obedient to what he says. Nothing in the Bible says Greg Wilson in the year 2000, whatever, has to plant a church in Trollton. That doesn't make it, like, the Bible does not say that. But we're going to get these, um, I think Christina prayed, like these nudges, kind of like almost sometimes like these shoves uh, into uh, areas where we should go that we wouldn't be comfortable otherwise. So sometimes the spirit works in wild ways and we get to be led by him. And really, our lives will lack fulfillment if we're not filled by him. So being filled by the spirit isn't something we pray for once in order to like to say that word for somebody else or whatever the thing might be. Being filled with the spirit is, is the Christian life of fulfillment. It's, it's, it's enjoyable and it's um, really fun. It's not always easy. It's not always fun, but it is the best thing for us. So... Um, Let me also, before we get on to trying to explain what this means, let's first just talk about what this doesn't mean for us. This doesn't mean we overlook the really simple and basic and ordinary ways that God has called us to know him. We don't need the Spirit to tell us we should read the Bible. We don't need the Spirit to be like, oh, I don't know, should I um, I go to church today? Like, the Spirit does not need to tell you that because the words of God himself tells you you should do that. The Spirit doesn't say, oh, should I, like, get involved in community? Like, no, that's, like, that's... That's dumb. Like, just get involved in community. Like, that's just what you're called to do. We don't need to kind of be led by our feelings and our whims by every moment. That's not what it means to be filled by the Spirit. So sometimes we can use that as an excuse of like, oh, no, the Spirit wasn't calling me. The Spirit wasn't calling you to go to church at all? Like, what? Like, that doesn't sound like the Spirit I know. Um, so that's, that's, even though the Spirit is moving us in ways we're not going to understand, that doesn't mean we overlook the very simple ways of, that God has already called us in order to know who he is. You have loads of questions, hopefully. Um, ask them over lunch if you're able to stay or ask me or if you're afraid of your question being too weird and you being known, you're asking the question. If you submit it on that website, I'll never know who it is anyway. So, um, and I'll put it in the email. Okay, we could probably stay on that for a bit, um, but there's lots of other things to figure out in this story that, that God wants us to know. And by itself, this is just a crazy story. Thankfully, we have, who is a person in verse 12? Amazed and perplexed, they asked one another, what does this mean? Thankfully, we have that person who's asking, what does this mean? Because by itself, I don't know. I have no idea what this means. Even as Peter explains it, which we're going to look at next, there's still a lot we don't really know about what is going on here. Like, why did the Spirit come in the wind in the way that he did? What's the deal with all the tongues of fire? There's lots of thoughts out there, but we don't quite know everything. But thankfully, Peter in verse 14 says, um, let me explain this to you. Listen carefully to what I say. All right, let's do that. Let's hear, let's listen carefully to what Peter, um, through God's word, uh, or God, um, through Peter's words, is telling us here. And again, this is another proof that actions um, cannot be understood without words, so it is in our lives with others. We have to use words to explain what's going on. So Peter's a good Jew. He knows his Old Testament, and he tells us that this old way is being fulfilled by this new way. We already touched on that a little bit on uh, the promise to Jeremiah that's coming true through Pentecost. In the last days, which is our time still, by the way, God says he's going to pour out his spirit. Now, why is that good news? Is that good news? Or is it just scary stuff to kind of block away as much as you can? To answer that question, Peter tells the story of Jesus. Only through the story of Jesus can we understand what in the world the Spirit's doing. It has to be filtered always through the story of Jesus. Only through the story of Jesus does all of this that has happened make sense. Uh, And Peter hones in specifically on Jesus' death and his resurrection. 
his death and his resurrection. So Jesus was born to die, not for his brokenness, but for ours. And we, humanity, put him to death. Jesus, uh, G- and Peter's gonna say this multiple times in, in his sermons. He's very bold. You guys killed this guy. You guys killed Jesus. Jesus was God, and that was the God that you crucified. It's kind of like, that's not a very feel-good kind of message, is it? You murdered the Lord. Um, but Peter doesn't hold back. We know Peter's slightly bold. And if you know kind of his life in the Gospels, and he's not holding back the way that he's preaching here. Uh, but God is more powerful, even uh, against all of the horrible things that we want to do in our lives, and overcame death, and now Jesus lives this new life in the resurrection. And what we learn over all these kind of uh, new te- uh, Old Testament fulfillments that, uh, um, that are coming true here is that Christ's death teaches all of us, even if we weren't present, Christ's death teaches all of us that we are more guilty than we fear. Sometimes we're like, ah, oh, my bad, bad. No, I'm probably not that bad. And then we kind of move on. We don't want to dwell on it because we know it's going to send us down like a dark spiral to the nothingness abyss. But Christ's death teaches us we're more guilty than we fear. But Christ's resurrection, in spite of all that, Christ's resurrection teaches us that we're more loved than we can imagine. Even more than all the guilt that we have, even more than all the fears that we have. And nothing, not even death itself, can keep God's love from us. Like killing Jesus, that's the worst thing you could do. That is, not what, that is not what keeps God away from us because God will not stop. Um, he will always give us his love and a life of fulfillment is one that finds itself in him. So just briefly, some of these things, some of the benefits of this is because of Christ's death and resurrection for everyone who follows Jesus, we won't be abandoned when we die. Verse 26 um, says, uh, therefore, my heart is glad, my tongue rejoices. My body also will rest in hope. Like we'll rest in hope is what we get to look forward to because we will not be abandoned when we, get, when we die. Everyone here is going to die and we will not be abandoned when we die because of what Jesus has done for us. We can have hope even in the worst of circumstances. It doesn't get any worse than death for us. And not only that though, we can have joy in life. Uh, look at verse 28. It says, you have made known to me the paths of life. You will fill me with joy in your presence. In our lives now, the good life is a path that's opened up to us because Jesus is that path. There is joy in life and we are fulfilled as we're filled in him. And we also have the, the Trinity itself in action in our lives. Let's just look at verse 33 that we brought it up already. This is kind of a crazy verse, like a condensation of Trinitarian theology and also like application all in one. It's amazing. Exalted to the right, this is Jesus. Exalted to the right hand of God, which is the, um, a symbol of power. It's where Jesus is now. He has received from the Father the promised Holy Spirit. So Jesus is there. The Father is there. The Father gives Jesus the Holy Spirit. And he has poured out, on, uh, he has poured out what you now see in here. So the Father gives uh, the Son the Spirit and the Son gives us his Spirit. That's crazy. All this is going on all in our lives. Now, like for those who follow Jesus, this is true. God himself has poured out on his people. And again, this is, not, this is another reason why God does not withhold his spirit a little bit in order for you to be baptized again later. Like you have a spirit, you have God himself. The Father, the Son, the Spirit, they're all working together. They never work against themselves. They all work together and they send the church. And that means the Trinity is alive and at work in our lives together. The church is an outcrop of heaven itself because the Trinity is there, the presence of God. And the pouring out of the Spirit is nothing less than God coming to earth through us. We get the idea of God coming to earth through Jesus. That's great, yeah. But God has come to earth through us. And everyone who calls out for help, 
will be rescued. Everyone who calls out to be fulfilled will be fulfilled. And this is a little bit of what's going on in Redeemer's logo, by the way. Uh, We wanted to get to the idea that God from on high is interacting and breaking into our world. That's the, um, this kind of like vertical alignment for us. And we get to join him in that process. So that sounds like great theology, maybe. Um, maybe you're like, yeah, I'm not completely convinced, but um, let's just say you're convinced and you're all on the same board. It's like, it's great, but what's the point? Like that's great information to have, but what does it matter? And that's exactly what's going on in, in verse 37. When the people heard this, it says they were cut to the heart. They basically were like, I cannot move on with my life until you explain to me like what I need to do. Peter, thanks for explaining it. And that's great, but like, what do I do with my life? Like, I can't go on unless you tell me what I need to do. They couldn't go on. So what do we do? That's a great question to ask. There, that sounds great. What do we do? Well, Peter speaks very plainly. Uh, maybe there's a hint of Mancunian in him. I don't know. He basically just says, repent, be baptized, you get forgiveness, you get the Holy Spirit. It seems very basic. Repent means to change your mind, change your mind to, uh, to turn about. You're asking for God to realign you. It's a switch of allegiance. You once were this way, and now you're this way. It's, things are different because you're going now on this path. You were going there on that path. Now you're over here. And Peter here is speaking to people who um, have never aligned their lives with God. These are like first-time people making their decision to follow Jesus in ways that he haven't, they haven't before. They've never switched their allegiance. Um, and the same thing applies to people here. If you've never made that decision to switch your allegiance from yourself to God or from whatever it might be to God, this is for you. All the nations are invited. This is for the people that we know in our lives. All the nations are invited to this. People who are far off, people who are near, people who are, you know, are the people who are getting drunk at night in the morning and people who are very religious and come to church services. This promise is for everybody. God wants everyone to experience him as the good life. And when God pours himself out, things are made new. That's what happens. That's what we get. When we ask God to rescue us, when we want to be realigned to follow Jesus, he pours himself out on us and we get new hearts. Our old hearts, they were led by fear. They were led by anxiety. They were leading us down places that were probably kind of okay, but nowhere near as good as what they could be if we were, if we were to align our lives with God. And God takes that old heart and he makes it new. He baptizes it in the spirit and now we have a completely new identity change. It frees us to be the people we were made to be. Often the kind of people we always wish to be but never really thought were possible. And this one-time decision that we make, though, isn't just that one and done. It's a calling to a lifelong set of decisions over and over and over again. So we repent that one time, but then we repent to live a life of repentance. It's just ongoing. And this is more than words. Uh, Like Tantius, who was a church, was a great name, uh, church father, oh yeah, let's repent, in uh, 250, said uh, basically something you see on Facebook now. Uh, People prefer example before talk because talk is easy and example is hard. And one has to imagine that Run DMC had those same thoughts going through their heads when they wrote, you talk when you're awake, I heard you talk when you sleep. Has anyone told you that talk is cheap? And that, ladies and gentlemen, is the first time Lactantius has ever been connected to Run DMC. I know you're here for this. I am too. So it's not less than words, right? Repentance is not less than words but it's more than just mere words by themselves. It's our whole lives together. That means some of our old customs are gonna have to be done away with and they're gonna crop up again as we live this new life in this new country and this new allegiance. Those old customs are gonna crop up and when they do, we try and put them away and we say, God, we're sorry, please will you help us? And that's why we have the spirit because otherwise we would have no way to do do this ourselves. 
We come to God and we ask him to realign us. So we repent to, to a life of repentance. Uh, and then uh, Peter says we should be baptized. Uh, water baptism is the symbol of this change of allegiance, basically saying, I am in this new family now. It's like an initiation rite to the family of God. It's supposed to be public. And if there's anyone here who needs to change their allegiance, like I'm, I'm not as naive to think just because people are involved in the church, everyone's like following Jesus. We can, all, is, we can all fake things for quite some time. But if anyone here needs to change their allegiance, let's take advantage of it today. And during communion, come over to me. We can pray about it and talk through it together. If there's anyone here who hasn't yet been baptized, who hasn't yet kind of made that public kind of declaration that I am in this new family now, um, that outward sign of an inward change, let's chat and let's do that. Let's be obedient to how Jesus is calling us to live. And what we get is forgiveness. So Peter is telling us that forgiveness is good news because you killed Jesus. It's great news because you killed Jesus. None of us were physically there, but all of us were there. Every time we deny him with our actions, saying something we ought not to, or not saying the thing that we should, doing the thing that we know is dumb, but we do it anyway, that's another nail, that's another whip. Isaiah 53, 6 says, we all like sheep have gone astray, all of us, each of us. But then the beautiful part after that says, and the Lord has laid on him, on Jesus, the iniquity of us all. Like we don't have to carry those burdens anymore. So we're all in the same place of living under our own allegiance. And that punishment that cosmic treason rightfully brings does not have to be ours to bear anymore. We get to be forgiven. Not in a way that's gonna be like held, up, held against us later on, you know, in an opportune moment in order for God to guilt us in doing something, but actually forgiven. So everything stupid you're gonna do today forgiven. Everything stupid you're going to do tomorrow, forgiven. Everything stupid you've done in the past, forgiven. It's done. It's forgiven. God has poured himself out on you, and you're a new person. And with that comes the gift of God himself, who is the Holy Spirit. The first time that decision is made is a change of allegiance. The promise is you get the Holy Spirit. Like, you have him. He is residing in you. It's a promise. As much as you've been forgiven, you have the Holy Spirit. Now, for those who are near and far off, so basically for all who believe, not just a select few, not just the people we feel comfortable around, it's a promise to everybody. And this is called the baptism of the Spirit. It's, something, uh, it's not something that will happen later. It's when you repent, you do that about, about face and switch your allegiance, you get the Holy Spirit, you receive him. And water baptism is the outward sign of that promise. So this promise of forgiveness and the gift of God himself is for everybody we talked about. And we get to be saved, as, as Peter says, uh, kind of towards the end of this passage here, um, pleading with people like, save yourself from this corrupt generation. These are people who are experiencing this crazy thing the Holy Spirit is doing, and Peter is still having to spend like, what sounds like the whole day trying to convince them and persuade them to save themselves from this corrupt generation. A corrupt generation, a, a, a corrupt time is everything that is not right in our world where things are bent and crooked and twisted where they should be made straight, when dishonesty is rewarded. You probably have all seen that in our workplace. Where betraying others is how you get ahead. Where people who look good on the outside actually have this horrible darkness and pain and, and um, lack of fulfillment on the inside. That's what we get to be rescued from. Because Jesus is making all that's twisted, all that's crooked, all that's bent, and is making them new. Whatever is not the way it's supposed to be Jesus is making it right. All that is sad is becoming untrue, as Tolkien wrote. The broken get wholeness, and we get to be a part of that. And that's what it means to be saved from a corrupt generation. 
And if you follow Jesus now, you have God himself. The old is gone, the new has come. If you don't follow Jesus, you can have the gift of God himself. He's not withholding. For those who do follow Jesus, I think sometimes we, not sometimes, often, we think God's withholding goodness from us. Why would we not allow ourselves to, to be given over to such a good God who just so clearly gives of himself so freely? As we are experiencing this God, um, we will declare the wonders of God as we experience him, as um, it happens at Pentecost. As we experience God's work in our lives, we will declare the wonders of God. And we don't have to speak in tongues and other tongues in order for that to happen. We don't have to speak in other languages in order for other people to understand why God is so good and wonderful. Because God can uh, pour himself out on us because he has already poured his life out on the cross. And the only way the spirit can give himself to us is because Jesus gave up his life for us. And that's why Peter is so intent in talking about Jesus' death. He, that's why it's connected so easily. Because Jesus gave his life so that we might lose our life and experience a new life. One that is about God's wonders and not about our own wonders and having to prop those up all the time. And so the bread is a symbol of the wonder of God who gave his body up for us. And the cup is a symbol of the wonder that God would give his blood for us. Through Jesus' death and resurrection, we get forgiveness and we get the Holy Spirit himself who's poured out over our lives, warts and all. doesn't require us to make ourselves great before he does that. He pours himself out. And if you don't yet believe this, we ask for you not to take communion with us because it's a symbol of allegiance to Jesus. And that's not where you're at right now. That's fine. We're glad that you're here. But we don't want you to do something that you don't believe with with your body um, in order to like, feel like you have to fit in or something. But if you um, haven't yet received the Holy Spirit by giving your allegiance to Jesus, this is a perfect opportunity to do so. We can pray together, we can talk together. Um, I'll be up at the front here. Um, or if you haven't yet been baptized in water to um, symbolize, as a symbol of what has gone on in your heart already, um, don't hide that allegiance to Jesus. Come and talk to me, we can talk about that. Now for everyone who has received the Holy Spirit, which means you follow Jesus, as we eat and our stomachs are filled, let's ask for our lives to be filled with him as well. Let's ask for uh, nothing else to satisfy in the way that he will. And let us crave his filling of us. That means we're going to be bold in our words and our actions for God in very kind of normal ways often. And you don't have to be a member of Redeemer here to, to, uh, to enjoy and to take part of this wonderful thing. What we do actually is um, Michael and Lydia are gonna come up a minute and um, sing some songs. And as they sing, we take a piece of the bread and dip it in the juice or the wine. But God has poured himself out on his people, which is us. He's poured himself out on us. And we have new hearts. We get to be a new family in a way that we weren't before. And we get to be fulfilled as we're filled by him. Let me pray.